From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We've heard a lot in recent weeks about how the novel coronavirus is a respiratory infection, but it turns out that COVID-19 also has an impact on the neurological system. Talking with me about that via web conferencing is Dr. Hesham Massoud, a neurologist specializing in endovascular surgical neuroradiology in the care of stroke patients at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Massoud. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been reading about a connection between large vessel strokes in young adults who are infected with COVID-19. There was a paper from doctors at Mount Sinai that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think it was an observation that they had a, uh, an increased amount of some of the worst types of strokes. So these are strokes where um, the mechanism is a large uh, clot that's blocked off a major artery. So they call these uh, types of strokes LVOs or large vessel occlusions. And so they're the kind of the biggest, baddest strokes. And um, the observation was that they had an uptick in that during the, the, you know, this period. And uh, a lot of these patients were young. Um, and so there was this hypothesis that, you know, what, what's happening here? And I think there was also an observation that there was some intraoperative clotting that was noted during, during one of the procedures. So, yeah, I read a news article that quoted a stroke neurologist in the midst of a clot retrieval who was able to witness the clots forming. Have you ever seen anything like that in real uh, time? So, you know, we've seen that happen in certain instances. Uh, it's very rare, I'll be honest with you, intraoperative to see that kind of thing. You can see clots forming when you deploy a device that's foreign to the blood, then clot will try to form on it. Sometimes you can get a paradoxical effect with some medications if you don't give the appropriate dose, and then you'll see clotting. But to see clot just form uh, apropos of nothing while you're trying to retrieve it is, is, uh, is unusual and really points to a systemic problem with clotting in that patient. You know, to me, that communicates that the patient overall has a state that we would, you know, we would call it hypercoagulable, which just means that their blood is thick and wants to clot, and it wants to do that everywhere. Um, so that's what that communicates to me, that observation. So these patients that, are, that have COVID-19 that also have strokes have some underlying thing that they didn't know about that makes well, them... Yeah, well, that's the question because, you know, in, the, in that observation, we didn't really get a lot about, you know, each patient and, and what their uh, circumstance was. We just knew that, you know, these are younger patients than usual for that hospital uh, uh, and, uh, and there was clotting. Um, so there's another paper that came out, or some, some observations that came out from, um, from Europe where the same, same thing where they found a lot more uh, than usual large vessel occlusions and in younger patients. Um, but they were also able to give us a little bit of data about the underlying factors in those patients. And a fair amount of those patients actually did have underlying clotting disorders. Um, and to me, that communicates kind of what we're seeing with COVID, which is that, you know, there are susceptible people. And if you're susceptible and you get COVID, then you can have a worse outcome. Uh, it, you know, meaning if you have, you know, underlying problems that can now be unmasked or exploited by, you know, having to deal with a virus. You know, to kind of speak a little bit more about the mechanism of how these things can happen is when you're fighting off an infection of any variety, you know, your, your, your body is sort of on high alert. And um, as a consequence of that, you can have clotting factors and things like that get activated. 
And if you have an underlying deficiency or abnormality with one of your clotting factors, this may unmask that uh, that in in a in a in a very real way, where you'll see um, where you'll see a, a negative consequence and some and some clotting. Uh, the other thing that they were able to report on is that you know when they did blood tests on these people, they also had markers of of uh, of heavy clotting going on, like you know some you know one marker is a D dimer, very elevated. That means that the blood is all clotting. Um, so, so that to me means that, you know, well, there's clot and that clot can form in the artery, it clot can form in the vein. And if you have clots that only form in the veins and no way to get to the brain, then maybe you're just going to get clots in your lungs and clots in other organs. But if you have a PFO, maybe that clot can get up to the brain. So there are all these questions as to, you know, uh, as to exactly what the mechanism is. Um, but in my, my understanding is it seems like, you know, there's an underlying deficiency, it gets unmasked, you get this, this virus which is activating everything, it's hitting the, all systems at, at once, and one of those systems is the clotting. And then depending on your circumstance, that can culminate into a, a, a large enough clot that can give you um, a stroke. Well, can you tell us about the role of neurology in the care of COVID-19 patients? Are, yeah. Are you, are, a neurologist is part of the team, right? Yeah. So I, you know, my, my specialty is interventional neurology and stroke. So I'm mostly kept to those patients. Um, we have seen, um, well, I should speak to that, you know, at, at Upstate, we actually have not seen any COVID positive large vessel strokes. Um, and uh, so that's interesting. The other thing is, is we also have not seen a decline in our numbers of stroke patients, which we, you know, in terms of patients requiring therapy like TPA or large vessel occlusions. Um, and I'm sure later on we'll talk about signs and symptoms and, and, and for people not to be afraid of, of, of getting care. But this, to me, at least for the couple of months that we have, communicates that I guess our community is doing a good job of, and, and you know, referring hospitals are doing a good job of making sure the sickest patients get to us and then maybe keeping the patients who don't need to have uh, the invasive therapies uh, locally. Um, but we have seen, you know, so, so this infection can, you know, can affect everything, right? So it can affect all these different organs. And, it can affect the brain in, in, in a condition called encephalitis, where it's really just an inflammation of the brain. You know? um, that can happen uh, when you have respiratory compromise from the virus, you know, where you're not breathing, that can cause you know, diminished oxygen in the brain, and that can also give you symptoms. So uh, you know, really, it's a secondary effect, um, but it really is just how this virus really attacks everything. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Hesham Masood, a neurologist specializing in endovascular surgical neuroradiology and the care of stroke patients at Upstate. And we're talking about the neurological impact of the novel coronavirus. So let me ask you about the neurological symptoms of COVID. What, what is causing the loss of taste and smell that we've heard about? Great question. So, you know, we'll go with a little basic neuroanatomy uh, for, for everybody is, you know, the, there are nerves that control our um, uh, face and control our uh, taste and control our smell that are localized right on the brain uh, or, or parts of the brain. And the one that has to do with smell is the olfactory uh, bulb and tract, and that's located very close to the nasal passages, which is a conduit for the virus to get in. Um, and you can see this with a lot of coronaviruses, you know, get a cold and then, you, you know, typically your nose gets blocked up. But if the virus invades that nerve ending, which is located right next to the nasal passages, it can compromise your smelling. 
um, your ability to smell, I should say. And, you know, also you can have uh, altered taste. It's important for people to remember that flavor has to do with smell and taste. So it doesn't have to be a complete loss. It can be an alteration. Um, one thing that people, uh, you know, wonder about is what's the recovery of, of, that, of that smell, you know, a loss of, of smell. And it's really variable, to be honest with you. Some people will get it back within weeks or months, and some people will never fully get it back. Um, Interesting. Are there other neurologic symptoms that you're seeing in patients? Um, I think, you know, as a secondary effect of the COVID, so for instance, if the patient has this condition we talked about briefly, encephalitis, depending on where the infection is, you can have all kinds of presentations neurologically, like seizures and, and things like that, movement disorders sometimes, um, depending on where the virus uh, it has infected. This sort of encephalitis, you know, which is just a sort of a broad term of inflammation in the brain, and the manifestation is going to be dependent on where that inflammation is. Well, I'd like to ask you about people who have neurologic conditions, such as Parkinson's or ALS. Do you think they're at greater risk for contracting the virus? I, I think the, the big thing is, is not necessarily the risk of contracting it as much as the risk of having a bad outcome if you have it. You know, one thing that we really don't know is how many people have COVID. We don't know that. We haven't tested enough people to see how many people actually have it. And there is some information coming out that there are lots of asymptomatic patients that are testing positive too in some cohorts. So we really don't know how many people have COVID. Um, I think the big question here is what kind of people who get COVID are going to have the, the, the negative uh, you know, outcome and, and you know, be more susceptible to the, the, the pathology that can occur. And I think you know, ALS is a good example because ALS can affect your ability to breathe. Um, and it you know, can compromise that air exchange. And if you have a virus that's also compromising that, that can cause a greater decline. Any neurodegenerative illness or uh, illness which has a immunocompromised state associated with it is really gonna represent that you're a little bit more weaker uh, in regards to fighting off infections. And that includes COVID, which we know is really a very sort of vicious virus compared to other coronaviruses in terms so, of its personality. If I have a neurologic condition, I should be sure I'm taking these precautions we've talked about with hand washing and limiting contact. And I mean, I'm, I'm in one of those high risk categories. Absolutely. Okay. And also, it's very important for everybody who doesn't have uh, uh, an immunocompromised or, or uh, a susceptible type of, of health condition to also practice social distancing. Because again, we don't know, and hand washing and mask covering and things like that, because we really don't know who has COVID. So we have to assume that even if you're asymptomatic, that you have it, and, and, and then you may pass it along un unknowingly to someone uh, who then gets the negative uh, effect of it. So we're really doing this as, as part of a community, you know, together. We're all in this together, you know. Well, getting back to stroke, I know in some communities, um, hospitals have seen a dramatic decrease in the number of stroke patients. And I think the theory is people are afraid to come to the hospital. So can you kind of walk us through what happens at Upstate during this COVID time? Is it safe yeah. for people to come to the hospital? Yeah. So I will say, you know, just right off the bat, for, for our numbers, like we sort of mentioned briefly, we haven't seen a decline in our treatments. So our treatment numbers of TPA and doing the clot retrieval has not declined. In some instances, maybe it's gone up a little bit. 
but not in young patients and we haven't had COVID positive. So to me, it means that people are coming, but, but you know, we are seeing that our inpatient census of people that we typically have who've had a stroke, you know, um, they're not getting treated, but maybe they're in the hospital and we're doing a workup, that number has decreased. And I think that that really has to do with the strength of our network because we're able to talk to all of the hospitals and we're able to triage patients. Um, who, needs, who needs to come to the comprehensive center? Who can stay at the local center? And that's really uh, how the model should be. But with that being said, if you look at um, you know, overall numbers of other things, which I think are reflective of stroke patients, like um, you know, cardiac patients getting stents and things like that, those numbers are significantly down. So, so um, I think the, the, big, the big thing to, to let everybody know is that you know, it, it's not like um, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice by coming to the hospital if you have a condition that warrants it. COVID should not stop medical care from being delivered. That's not how it works. You know? um, so if you have a, a sudden onset deficiency and so, so sudden onset you know, loss of function that localizes to your brain, whatever that may be, speech, arm, you know, site, you have to come to the emergency room because these treatments are still available. Now, what we do is we assume that anybody coming through the ED is a COVID positive patient until proven otherwise for our stroke patients. And so we have a protocol for them where they get masked, we have precautions, we test them. And until that test comes back negative, we treat you as a COVID patient. But um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't come, you know, you, you got to come in. If you have a symptom, it's, it's, it trumps everything, honestly. And uh, it's important to note that I don't think coronavirus should, should make people fearful from getting medical attention. So let me, you said you treat people as a COVID patient, but this is while simultaneously you're treating them for stroke in, in the event yes. they have it. Yes. So, so all so of that instance, happens at once. Yes. So for instance, you come in, we say, okay, we think he, you know, just uh, assuming that this patient is COVID because again, we don't know if the person has symptoms or not. They may not be able to communicate to us that we know that they may be asymptomatic patients are going to have asymptomatic patients are going to have uh, potentially COVID. So we put a mask on them. They put them in isolation um, uh, in terms of precautions, isolative precautions, um, but we still render the care. You know, uh, we just sort of have a heightened level of uh, protection for the healthcare providers who are dealing with that patient. Well, that's very good to know. Thank you so much to Dr. Hesham Masood, a neurologist specializing in endovascular surgical neuroradiology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.